the greatest need at this present hour, at this historical and cultural moment that we're living in, the greatest need is people who are willing to give themselves over more and more to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the need of the hour. People who are willing to give themselves over more and more to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the need. That's always the need. That's what the Father is seeking. The Father is seeking worshipers. That's the need. And let me tell you, it's happening. What I just described is happening. And it's happening here. And it's happening in the young people. There is a thirst for God that is visible. And minds are being given over to the study of God. And lives are being given over to God. It's happening in the young people. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I've heard the reports with my own ears. Now, adults... Don't be discouraged. There's a lot to be discouraged about. Don't be discouraged. Be inspired. Be inspired to get acquainted or reacquainted with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God grant that this generation, this new generation of young people that God is raising up, some of whom were standing on the stage a few minutes ago, God grant that their generation will excel previous generations by a factor of a hundred. God grant that in their lives. This is the business that we've been about for the last five weeks, trying and working to know God better by studying these five descriptors of God from his own mouth, the ones that he uses to describe himself from Exodus chapter 34. And I invite you to join me there, Exodus 34. Younger children, if you're still in the room, you're, you're dismissed now to go to children's church. We'll see you in a little bit. We come today to the third of the five descriptors. God is merciful. God is gracious today. God is patient. In the words of our text, he is slow to anger. I'm going to talk about what that means and what that means for us. We're going to frame our little study with two questions today. These are the questions that are on your outline. You can find in the, in the bulletin or if you're um, watching online, these resources are downloadable as well. These are the two questions that are going to frame our time together. Question one, is God an angry God? And question two, is God angry with me? Is God an angry God, and is God angry with me? That's the basic outline of our time together, okay? That's where we're headed. Let's read the text together. I'm going to start in verse 5 uh, once again, and we'll read into verse 6 of Exodus 34. Are you ready? Let's stand in honor of God and his word. 
God speaking uh, with Moses, Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Eternal Father, thank you for telling us who you are. Thank you for telling us so clearly who you are in words that we can understand. Slow to anger. We rejoice and we rest in who you are. We draw our life from who you are. Make us more like you. Make us more like you as we study you and talk about you, as we think about what you have shared with us about yourself. We humble our hearts and our minds before you. We repent of low and untrue thoughts of you. We wait on you with anticipation. We love you, Father. And we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Please be seated. The particular trait at issue today is anger. And we begin with this question. Is God an angry God? That's an important question. Let's answer in three parts. Let's give a three-part answer to that question, is God an, an angry God? And here's the first thing that we can say. Part one of our answer, God experiences anger. Sometimes the scriptures tell us about things that God does not experience. We just sang about one of those things. God doesn't get tired. That song that we sang, Everlasting God, is right out of Isaiah 40. He's the everlasting God. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. God doesn't sleep. Psalm 121 makes a big deal out of the fact that he doesn't sleep. Psalm 121, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We get tired. We go to sleep. God does not. On the other hand... There are some things that we experience that God also experiences, and one of those things is anger. God doesn't get tired, but he does get angry. The scriptures make that clear. We don't have to look very far for examples. Um, Moses had a front row seat to God's anger. Remember in the, the account of the burning bush when Moses is spending that time on that holy ground with God? And Moses begins to multiply the excuses for why he's not the right candidate to go and talk to Pharaoh. And as God is making, as Moses is making his best case before God for why he's not the right one, we read at Exodus 4.14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And we find something similar just two chapters back from where we are now. We're in chapter 34 of Exodus. If we go back to chapter 32, we read about God's anger toward his people corporately for their worship of the golden calf. 
We understand from these examples, and there are many others, that God does experience anger. That's the first part of our answer. Here's the second part. Anger is not integral to God's nature. Anger is not integral to God's nature. So part one, God experiences anger. But part two, anger is not integral to God's nature. It's not essential to his nature. Love is integral to his nature. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is essential to God. God is love. We have no such statement regarding anger. We don't come to the scriptures and read, God is anger. No, God is love. But we don't have this parallel statement, God is anger, because he's not anger. God is not anger. It's not essential to his being. Anger is rather drawn forth from God by the violation of his good and holy nature. Let that sink in for a moment. Anger is not integral to who God is, but it is rather drawn forth from the violation of his good and holy nature. If we put it a little bit differently, we could say this. Anger is God's right response to the rejection of all that is integral to his nature. Holiness, love, purity, wisdom, power, authority. All of these are integral and essential to who God is. Anger is his right response when those things are rejected and trespassed against. And as paradoxical as it might seem, anger is really a manifestation of God's goodness. It is right and good that God be angry when his holy and good nature is violated. And I think an illustration will be helpful here. If a dad witnesses one of his children walk up behind another one of his children, an unsuspecting child, and slap them on the back of the head. If he sees one of his children do that to another one of his children, slap them on the back of the head really, really hard, so hard that the other child is crying and the offender is laughing. What would we say about a dad who watches that whole situation unfold and then feels nothing and does nothing? When he witnesses that gross violation of the law of love in his own home. Would we call that dad good? This dad who's unmoved by what he sees. No, I think you would agree that we would reserve the label good for the dad that witnesses this and then experiences in himself an appropriate amount of anger toward the offending child. 
It's possible for him to at once love the offending child and be angry at the offending child for this gross violation of the law of of love and all that's good. He was not angry before the violation took place. He wasn't walking around the house angry. No, his anger was drawn forth from him by what he witnessed. It arises in him as a good and right response. And that's what we want to understand about our God. His anger is the right and good response to the violation of his righteousness. Anger is really a manifestation of his goodness. So first, God experiences anger. Second, anger is not integral to his nature. And third, touching now here on the text before us in Exodus 34, this is the third thing. God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. Let's say something about the meaning of this phrase. What does it mean that God is slow to anger? And then let's say something about the significance of the phrase, the significance of it being here. Okay? First of all, regarding the meaning When the Lord says that he is a God slow to anger, it means that it is not God's usual way to punish sins immediately, but to give time for repentance. When we read that God is slow to anger, it means that it's not his usual way to punish sins immediately, but to give time for repentance. That's a very long way of just saying this. God is patient. God is patient with sinners. He is a patient God. The phrase here in in the Hebrew is actually long of anger. It's not the word slow in the original. The phrase is actually long of anger. And the Hebrew here is pretty colorful. In the Hebrew conception, the emotion anger was associated with the nose. The same way that we associate the emotion love with the heart. We talk about love being something that we feel in the heart. That's our figurative way of thinking about love. We know that the tissues of our heart don't love anything. They can't. But when we talk about love, we talk about it being present in the heart. Well, the Hebrews associated anger with the nose. Because when one gets angry, there's huffing and there's puffing and the face gets hot. And all of these things came to be associated with the nose. That's where one feels anger. And what God reveals about himself here in the Hebrew language is basically just, it takes his nose a long time to get hot. His anger is not quickly kindled. He's like an old struggling microwave in this respect. Just doesn't get hot that quickly. God's not in instant pot. I just learned what an instant pot was last week. Okay? That does not describe God's anger. God's anger is like an old struggling 
microwave. It takes a long time to heat. What would you consider to be your worst offenses against God? What have been your worst offenses against God? Think about the fact that he did not strike you down immediately for that offense or those offenses. Think about the fact that he still hasn't struck you down for those offenses. We're all still here. When we read that the Lord is slow to anger, we understand that it is not his usual way to punish sins immediately, but to give time for repentance. He is patient with us. He is so patient. Now let's deal with a likely objection that some of you have going on in your head already, hearing about how God is slow to anger, especially some of you who know the Bible really well. Some of you already have in mind passages like Leviticus 10, where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they approach the altar and they die. They die immediately for violating one of God's commands. That happens in Leviticus 10. People die immediately for their disobedience. Some of you have in mind Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira bring that famous, or rather infamous offering and lay it before the disciples' feet, and they're struck down immediately for that violation. And some of you that have been teaching Sunday school for a long time, or you went to a lot of vacation Bible school, and you've studied the Bible a long time, are thinking about that interesting man, Uzzah, who we meet in 2 Samuel chapter 6, who tried to do what he thought was a helpful thing. And he put out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant that was being pulled on ox cart. And the oxen were stumbling, and he didn't want the Ark to fall. And so he put out his hand to catch the Ark and keep it from falling, and he died. He died immediately. We read in that passage, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. What are we going to do with that? These don't seem to describe a God slow to anger. They seem to describe just the opposite. God, very quick to anger. Well, what do we do? Well, we can't take a long time with it. I think today it may be helpful just to say these two things about those situations. For those of you grappling with this question, is God really slow to anger? Kind of looks like he's quick to anger. Let's say these two things about those situations, about those people who died pretty much immediately for their sins, okay? Number one, these things all happened within the community of faith. They happened to people who were, in my view, already in relationship with God. For my part, I fully expect to see all of those individuals in the kingdom of heaven. Every one of them. Ananias, Sapphira, 
Uzzah, Nadab, and Abihu, they were all part of the community of faith. They, are, they were not people whose eternal destiny became horrific because of their error. Their earthly life ended because of their transgression. Just understand that first. Those things all happen within the community of faith. Second thing is that they all happened in public. These were not secret sins. They happened in public in front of lots of people. At least two out of the three happened right at the beginning of something new in salvation history. God had just created his people, Israel, in Leviticus 10. That incident happens right at the beginning of their story. We come to Acts 5, new event in salvation history. The church has just been created. That event happened right at the beginning of the creation of the church publicly. And in my view, probably served the purpose of teaching the new community that had been formed something about the fear of God, something that they had to know so that there would be appropriate attention and due respect given to the God that they were serving together, okay? So I think those two things are helpful in understanding these times when we read about God's anger being quickly roused. How the individuals who died, in in my view, did not suffer eternal and irreparable loss. And how their death likely served a greater purpose, not just the judgment of those people, but the instruction of the whole community. Okay? Now, maybe that's not satisfying to you. Keep studying. Come Come teach me something. Show me what you see. And let's keep working to understand this God that we worship who has revealed himself here in the scriptures. Okay, let's say something about the meaning, excuse me, the significance of the description. We talked about the meaning, what it means that God is slow to anger. Say something now about the significance of it. And let's recognize this, brothers and sisters, God has been marvelously transparent with us. God has been marvelously transparent with us. And I'll tell you what I mean. Think about this scenario. Substitute teacher walks into the classroom. Never been in there before. Introduces themselves to the class. And the very next words out of their mouth are, I am slow to anger. I'm a very patient person. What do you think is going to happen in that room? What kind of behavior does that invite? Will the class not presume upon the patience of this substitute and take advantage of it in any number of ways? Now, think about the significance of the fact that God has told humanity that he is slow to anger. Does this not invite people to presume upon his patience? 
since it's not God's usual way to punish sins immediately, won't there be people that take advantage of that and carry this mindset with them in life? I guess it really doesn't matter how much I sin. Nothing seems to be happening. Nothing bad is happening to me. Can't see any real consequences to this. God's not striking me down. They told me in Sunday school this was bad. I'm doing it now. Doesn't seem so bad. God's not punishing me. Doesn't appear that he's even taking notice. And I know God is patient, so I can just keep sinning for a while, maybe a long while, and I can always go back to him. Doesn't God telling this about himself invite that kind of a mindset and that kind of behavior? Why tell us this about himself? Why would God be so marvelously transparent with us about his nature and say to us, I am slow to anger? I'm not going to presume to know for sure the answer to that question, but here's what we know is true. Not everyone has had a good and loving father. Not everyone in this room or watching online has had a father that loves them. Not everyone has had a father that they feel like they can go to if they've messed up. And know that they would be listened to and understood and valued and loved no matter what. Some have only known fathers of quick anger, unrelenting, unreasonable, quick to punish, slow to love. You may never have heard, I love you, from your dad. Why would God tell humanity, I am slow to anger? Why would he be so marvelously transparent with us at such a great cost to himself? I think we can at least say this. He wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know what kind of a father he is. Patient. Tender-hearted understanding, reasonable. That is what you will find. That is who you will find when you go to him broken, having broken all of his rules and at the end of your rope with no excuses. That is who you will find waiting for you. dad who loves you. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In other words, he knows our weakness. When we approach God the Father, we approach an understanding, compassionate, patient Father. That's what God is like, and he's been marvelously and sacrificially transparent with us. Is God an angry God? God experiences anger. His anger is not integral to his nature. And finally, he is slow to anger. He is a compassionate father. Let's deal rather quickly with our second question. It's a very personal question, but it's a very important question. Is God angry with me? It's a question all of us in this room need to ask. Is God an angry God? Well, is God angry with me? Let's answer this in three parts. These will be pretty brief. First thing that we have to consider in this question, is God angry with me, is the presence of sin. Because you are a sinner by nature and by choice, God's wrath is upon you. Because you are a sinner by nature. In other words, you want to sin. And because you are a sinner by choice. In other words, because you've chosen to sin. God's wrath, his anger is upon you. You were born desiring sin. And according to that nature, you make sinful choices daily, sometimes hourly. Coveting, envying, hating, stealing. Lusting, gossiping, slandering, manipulating, failing to love people, all of these things. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, carrying out the desires. Listen to the description. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What a vivid description of sin. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yes, God is angry with you. And it is right and good for him to be angry with you because of the presence of sin in you. You have violated his good and holy nature. You have turned your back on perfect purity in order to pursue sin. That's the first thing, the presence of sin. But understand this as well. Understand the second thing as well. Understand how God has chosen to deal with his wrath against you. What has God done because his wrath is upon you? God has raised up a mediator. Understand, yes, the presence of sin, but understand, second, the presence of a mediator. That's the pattern that we see from God in history, is that he deals with his just anger against sinners by raising up a third party, someone else, to stand between his wrath and the sinner. That's been his pattern in history. Did you know that? To raise up a mediator to stand between. In the Old Testament, it's Moses. Can you imagine that Moses becomes the mediator? He who is rejected and hated and treated so harmfully by the people. He prays for those people he was leading. 
that wanted to stone him. God raised him up to stand there before himself and pray and intercede for those people so he wouldn't destroy them. Psalm 106 extols that experience. Talks about all the sins of Israel. And then we read, therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. It was Moses. God raised up a mediator. Moses, who was wounded, at least spiritually, by the people. Moses, who prayed for the people. And the wrath of God was turned away from the people. Now, who does that sound like? If you have never known or you have never valued Jesus of Nazareth, understand this about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the unique and final mediator that God himself raised up to stand in the breach between the wrath of God and sinful humanity. Jesus of Nazareth, who on the cross received the wounds from the people. Jesus, who prayed for the people as he was receiving those wounds. And Jesus, who turns away the wrath of God so it does not fall. Upon the people of God. He is the mediator who God raised up for you to avert his wrath from you. Did you know that? There's only one more thing you need to know. And that there's a promise of pardon for all who receive Jesus as their mediator. You cannot be your own mediator. That's what we want to do. We want to bring God a spreadsheet with all of the good things we've done and lay it before him and say, here's the time that I've put in. Here's the good deeds that I've done. Here are the ways that, in which I'm better than my neighbor. We cannot mediate for ourselves with God. We cannot present him with a spreadsheet. And that's because his standard is perfection. Not a good life, but a perfect life. You must take the mediator that he himself has provided. His only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God promises that all who receive Jesus, all who stop trying to work to please the Father and simply rest and trust the one who's already worked and already satisfied the wrath of the Father will be saved. You will be pardoned. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You need Jesus. I hold him forth to you today. That's my job. And the greatest privilege that anyone could ever have is to say, look at Jesus, the mediator that God provided for you. God wants you to know what he's like, slow to anger. God wants you to know what he's done. He's provided a mediator. God wants you to come to repentance, to bring your sins to him and simply trust Jesus. And most of all, God wants you. Your father wants relationship 
with you. Give yourself to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit today, May 23rd, 2021. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, time fails us to praise you for your indescribable gift. Christ has turned away your wrath, no longer upon us. How we praise you for that. All of those who have received Christ by faith praise you that the work is finished forever and we have no fear anymore. And for those who have not believed and received, we pray that today would be that day and that you would open upon the broken supplicant, a torrent of love and mercy, unlike what they have ever known before. A father to the fatherless and a friend of sinners. How we thank you in Jesus' name.